Well, today is a very exciting day in the life of our church. You may have noticed that Tom is not here today. That's not why it's an exciting day, but it's, uh, it's an exciting day because of where Tom is and why he is there. This morning, Tom is at North Lake Bible Church. He's preaching there, and he's gathered with a number of our elders to install two new lay elders for North Lake Bible Church. If, if you're not familiar, North Lake is our first church plant, plastered by Dusty Burris, who was a, a staff member here at Countryside for about 10 years before being sent out to pastor that church. And, and so today, Tom and the other elders are installing Drew Michael and Wade Grubbs as lay elders there giving them three elders, which is the final step to them becoming a fully independent local church, which will happen today. You know, God has done amazing things at Northlake over the last several years. It was in January of 2019 that the elders announced the plan and desire to send a, about 150 people with Dusty to begin a church in the area of Northlake. Just out of curiosity, how many of you were not here in 2019? You were not a part of our church. number of you that the Lord has added since that time. Well, they began meeting in uh, the gym on our campus in the fall of 2019. There was about six or seven months of assembling that group, doing some preliminary work, and then they began meeting as a Sunday school class, then as, as a, a separate church having their own worship service in the gym. In January of 2020, we we sent them out to Northlake. They began meeting in Lance Thompson Elementary School in Northlake, just as a core group initially. And then on February 16th, 2020, they launched publicly with about 175 members, a little over 200 people total in attendance. Well, if you remember early 2020, they immediately had to deal with the challenges of COVID. That they were not able to meet in that school that they had planned to meet in for over a year. In God's kindness, he allowed them to meet at, at Cinnamon Creek Ranch in Roanoke for uh, about a year during that time. And, and in God's providence, they moved back to the school a little over a year ago. You know, during this time, these last few years, the church attendance has grown from about 200 when they started to about 450 to 470 today, including young children. They've added 156 new members in that time. They've had 34 baptisms and 70 people complete the Partners Discipleship Program that we use here at Countryside as well. They've begun a building program, starting to work with an architect to design a, a facility that would be on the land that we purchased for them and that we are giving to them as they become an independent church. Now, there's countless examples of individuals whose lives have been transformed through the gospel, through the, the preaching of God's word and the, the ministry of the saints there at Northlake. So today is a day of rejoicing and gratitude. You know, we're grateful for Dusty, his wife Rebecca, and, and all those who went with them from countryside to begin this church, for the sacrifices and effort that they've made over these years to see this congregation and to continue to see this congregation established. 
We're grateful for those who have stepped up at countryside to serve and, and to fill the roles and the voids that were left by those faithful folks who went out for this new church. We're grateful for those who have joined that original group, some now key leaders like Wade Grubbs, who's being installed as an elder today. But primarily today, we thank God for His work. You know, as I've been thinking about this day and, and this sermon, there's a number of passages that have been on my mind. I, I invite you to turn to one of them found in Colossians chapter 1 as we will consider verses 3 to 8 together this morning. Colossians chapter 1 verses 3 through 8. Let's begin reading it together in, in verse 1 to set the context. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. You know, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae from prison in Rome. Timothy was there with him, as was noted in verse 1. And interestingly, Paul may not ever have been there to meet these people that he was writing to. You may have picked up on that even as we read these opening verses. And in verse 4, he says he had heard of their faith. He, he had mentions that they learned the gospel not from him, but from Epaphras, who had also informed Paul of their love. Over in chapter 2, verse 1, he mentions those who have not personally seen his face. So in spite of the fact that he did not have a, a personal relationship with at least many of the folks that he was writing to. He begins with a profound expression of gratitude for them and really for the work of God in them. You know, most in this room have never been to and never will go to North Lake Bible Church. Many of you who, who raised your hand earlier weren't even here necessarily when the 170 were sent out from this church. Few of us have gotten to know but a handful of the 200 plus people who have come to North Lake since it began. And yet we ought to have a profound gratitude for the work of God in and through them. A gratitude that, quite frankly, should not simply be expressed on account of North Lake Bible Church, but for the work of God in any context including our own lives and our own church and the work of God throughout the world. Paul, in these verses, gives us a pattern for such gratitude. This passage teaches that we are to be grateful for gospel 
growth. We are to thank God for the amazing transformation he produces through the gospel. How can we live with such a a framework of gratitude? In our text today, we'll see four characteristics that fuel such a perspective. The first characteristic is that we consistently give thanks to God. Notice how Paul began in verse 3. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, verses 3 through 8 that we're considering together today are one long sentence in the Greek text, you know, kind of a a run-on sentence of gratitude as Paul's mind is going. And the primary idea, the primary verb of this sentence is that of giving thanks. We give thanks to God for you. It's, It's a present tense verb implying continuous ongoing action. It wasn't that there was just one time where Paul gave thanks for them. It's that this was an ongoing pattern of Paul's heart and life. Paul was consistently thankful for others. You know, this is not the only letter where Paul begins with gratitude for his readers. It wasn't that the Colossians were some exceptional group of Christians, and so Paul was grateful for them, but he really wasn't grateful for most other Christians. No, this was a regular pattern for him. Back in the the letter to the Romans, in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Or in 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Or Philippians chapter 1 verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Or 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Or Philemon, verse 4, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. You see, Paul was consistently and genuinely thankful for others. For Paul, though, this consistent gratitude was not limited to other people, After all, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul and each of us should cultivate gratitude in all things, at all times, a perspective of being grateful, being thankful to the Lord. But notice his gratitude was not directed primarily at others, but at God, He didn't write to the Colossians and say, I'm so thankful for you all. You are amazing. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul understood what James taught in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing, every perfect gift comes from whom? It comes from God, from the Father 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the chiefest of gifts that God has given is in verse 18 of James chapter 1, that in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God has given us life, new birth in him, according to his work and by his will, God has done that. And so our gratitude is directed to God. All the things that Paul recognized in the Colossian believers that elicited his gratitude ultimately came from God. Now, Scripture does command us to honor one another, so this is not saying that we should never say thank you to other people. We should. We should give thanks to others. You know, it's not wrong, parents, to teach your kids to say thank you. And if you had that drilled into your head by your parents, keep doing it. Keep saying thank you to others. And, you know, Paul did even indirectly do so here and in these letters when he expressed thankfulness to God to these people. He's expressing gratitude to a degree to them. But our ultimate gratitude and praise should be directed not at others, but at the Lord. And frankly, we should want God to receive that focus instead of being focused on receiving gratitude and praise ourselves, being quick in our own hearts and minds and even our words to redirect the honor that we receive to the Lord. So if we're going to be grateful for gospel growth, if we're going to thank God for the amazing transformation he produces through the gospel, the first characteristic we must have is to consistently give thanks to God as a pattern for our lives, not just in this one area, but as an overarching perspective of being grateful. A second characteristic we see is that we should be regularly, we should regularly pray for others. Notice again verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Notice that word always there in the English translation. In the, the original language, it's a little unclear whether that word should be connected to the giving thanks, we always give thanks, or to the praying. Different translations put it in different places. You know, I think the, the reality is, I, I don't think Paul always gave thanks for them in the sense that it was 24-7, 365 days a year, he's constantly giving thanks for them, nor do I think it's realistic that he was always praying for them in, in that sense, that he never ceased, never stopped to pray for them. I think the best understanding of the relationship between the giving thanks and the praying and the always is captured in the ESV, which says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he did pray for them, and he prayed regularly for them. When Paul prayed for them, he always gave thanks. You know, eventually, Paul gets to what he was praying for them. He tells them, look down at verse 9. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's not just praying for their physical needs, is he? He's not just praying for their ingrown toenails or financial success or the practical realities of life. He, he certainly cared about those things for them, but he's praying for their spiritual maturity. 
He says that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. Verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what Paul was praying for them. What a rich prayer. What a model for us of how to pray for one another, for other believers, for ourselves. But what I want you to notice here in verse 3 is simply the connection between Paul praying for them and Paul giving thanks for them. Whenever he prayed, and he did so regularly, he gave thanks. You know, he doesn't say anything about giving thanks when he doesn't pray. Part of that is because he's giving thanks to God. And so whenever he gives thanks to God, he is by definition praying. But I think the connection is also instructing us that praying for others fosters gratitude to God for them. And that gratitude for them should be a regular part of our praying for others. When you pray for others, do you thank God for them and for his work in them? And and do you pray regularly for others in a way that cultivates your gratitude for them? You know, if you're struggling to think about others with gratitude, maybe you're tempted to be overly critical or you're struggling to love them as you ought, perhaps a family member or a a coworker, a neighbor, someone else in our church, begin regularly praying for them. Not, not simply praying for them so that they will change to make your life easier. We can all be tempted to, to focus in that way. But expressing thanks for them and praying that God will transform them into his image, not for our sake, but so that he is glorified in them. Paul was regularly praying for others, and so his heart was eager to give thanks for them. You see, praying for spiritual growth in others, as Paul did, fosters gratitude to God when you, in fact, see that spiritual growth. You're more likely to to notice it and more likely to be grateful for it. Think of of this example. I, I have the joy of coaching my youngest daughter's middle school basketball team, and my wife, Christy, assists in that. There's a a number of girls on the team that are even here uh, today, and we started practicing a couple of times a week. Our our first games are in early November, and so by the time those games roll around, we'll have spent probably the better part of a, a work week with those girls, getting to know them, helping them to grow in their individual skills, and helping them to play together as a team, and And so at that season opening tournament, we'll be eager to watch those girls. And, you know, there'll there'll be others watching, parents and friends, folks from other other teams connected to our program, and and probably just some innocent bystanders passing by the court, connected to other teams or programs who don't know those girls at all and just kind of see what's going on. You know, some of our, our newer girls successfully do something we've practiced you know, they sprint back, filling their lanes for a transition fast break layup, or they play good help defense. You know, those, those innocent bystanders, you know, they may not even notice. And if they do, they may think, eh, you know, I've seen better. 
But as coaches, having invested in them, knowing them, caring for them, we're going to be looking for those things, and, and we're going to be super excited when we see them. Even if we're not, as a team, everything we hope we will eventually be, we will be excited for those steps of progress that we see. In the same way, if, if you're praying for others, if you've been praying for North Lake Bible Church over these number of months and years, or or praying for your spouse, or your kids, or those in your small group at church, or your neighbors, or your coworkers, or your extended family. And God is working. You're far more likely as I am to notice as God works in their life, even in seemingly small ways, and you're far more likely to rejoice and give thanks. That was Paul regularly praying for others and consistently giving thanks to God. If you want to follow Paul's example in being grateful for gospel growth, those are the first two characteristics you need to consistently give thanks to God and regularly pray for others. And thirdly, we need to eagerly look for spiritual fruit. You know, as you're praying for others, you're more likely to notice that spiritual fruit But it needs to be an intentional effort, an intentional focus on our part to look for the work of God, to be aware of the work of God in others. Paul writes this, he says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. See, Paul paid attention to the spiritual fruit God was producing in others. As you recall, Paul had not personally witnessed the spiritual fruit among the church at Colossae, but he had heard about it. As we see in verse 7, Epaphras, who was a a fellow bondservant, a servant of Christ, had come and and had informed him of their faith and, and their love, as we'll see in this verse. Epaphras had had come to visit in prison and had brought word to Paul about what was going on in the church at Colossae. Epaphras knew that Paul would want to know the things that were happening, and, and part of what Epaphras came and brought word of was some of the challenges and concerns, some of the potential false teaching that was arising, and so Paul wrote this letter in part to address those things that were of a concern. But he also came and simply brought news of what God had been doing in these people's lives. And that news caused Paul to give thanks to God. What had Paul heard from Epaphras? What were the reasons for his gratitude? Well, I mentioned there were two spiritual realities in in verse 4 that he had heard of. The first is their faith in Christ Jesus. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Certainly, this includes their initial response of saving faith. The fact that they had repented and believed the gospel. Even this faith of theirs was a gift of God, as Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
Paul knew the fact that they had faith, that they believed the gospel and responded in, in trusting in Christ was a gift of God, and so he thanked God for that. But I think it's more than simply the fact that they had saving faith. It's, it's also that they were living by faith, that they were growing in their faith in Christ. This is the idea of Galatians 2.20, where Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, for the believer, we are saved by faith, and then we live by faith. Believing and trusting Christ for our salvation and for all that we need for life. We obey him, we follow him, we trust him in the midst of our circumstances. We live by faith. The Colossian believers, having been saved by faith, were growing in their faith, in their trust and obedience. And so Paul, recognizing that, gave thanks to God. It wasn't just their faith in Christ that spurred his gratitude, it was also their love, verse 4 continues, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. They were characterized by a love for all the saints, by love, by that desire to be with and care for one another, the desire and the, the, the act of, of giving of oneself for the good of one another. And they had that love for all the saints, not, not the New Orleans football team, right? Not, not those that the, the Catholic Church has designated as, as special over the years. No, this is all believers as saints. The term refers to every true believer. Is that because we're all now perfect? No. It's because we are set apart and declared righteous by God because of Christ. When God sees us, he sees saints. That was who they loved, and not just some of the saints, not just ones they liked or got along with or had similar desires and and interests, but all the saints. Again, this love is a work of God in the heart of every true believer. He says in in verse 8, that Epaphras informed us of your love, notice how he describes it there, your love in the Spirit. Romans 5, 5 puts it this way, it says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, this love for all the saints doesn't come naturally to us. That love for the saints that is true and and characteristic of believers is a work of the Spirit of God. It's one of the characteristic fruits of the Spirit is love. One of the results of being born again is love for other believers, love for the rest of the family, as it were. This is why one of the tests of eternal life in 1 John that we've been studying is is what? A a love for God and for his people. As 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed out of death 
into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. You see, the Colossian believers were characterized by love for all the saints. And so Paul gave thanks to God. You know, when we see faith growing uh, trust in God, saving faith, when we see love in other believers, sacrificially giving of oneself for others who are, who are the Lord's, it should drive us to give thanks to God. When we hear of the faith and love that characterize those at, at Northlake, it should drive us to give thanks to God. But these, this passage, these two characteristics of the, the Colossians, faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints, not only give us a, a guide for our gratitude, things to look for that should spur us to be thankful, but they also give us a, a grid for self-evaluation. If your life is not characterized by faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints, you need to be honest with yourself about whether you are in fact in Christ for they characterize true believers just as they did the Colossians and so Paul gave thanks to God for them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Colossians were not exceptional Christians and so Paul gave thanks for them. Paul made a regular habit of thanking God for his work in other believers. It's interesting if you looked back at, at those letter openings that I read earlier where Paul is expressing gratitude, that there, are, there is some overlap in the things that he thanked God for about those different churches, but there's also a lot of uniqueness. Paul knew those churches. He'd heard about the work that was taking place in those churches, and he was recognizing the specific things that God was doing in, in those individual believers and in, in those congregations. Paul made a regular habit of, of recognizing and identifying the, the work that God was doing and, and giving thanks to God for that work, even for those whom we might not expect him to. You know, like, when I, when I read those verses of times where Paul was giving thanks, if you're like me, the one that stood out and made you go like, huh, really? Was probably the letter of 1 Corinthians, right? You know, if, you, if you've read your Bible, you know the, the church at Corinth was not a model church. They, they were gifted and had a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, things that the world would look at and say, that's impressive. But from God's perspective, they were selfish and divisive, tolerant of sin. There were, there were all kinds of things that were wrong with that church. And, and yet Paul still opens with gratitude for God's work. Again, he may have had to squint a little bit to, to see it, and he certainly addressed areas of clear sin, but he wrote to them, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, uh, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was eager to identify and thank God for the spiritual fruit produced in others. 
You know, if you're like me, you can always probably find an area of needed growth and improvement in yourself or in others. You can easily criticize someone else for a weakness in spite of other areas of strength. You know, Paul was realistic. He, he didn't have rose-colored glasses, but he and those who worked with him were eagerly looking for the spiritual fruit in others and were eager to praise God for it when they recognized it. Really, Paul was able to recognize it because he had a deep and clear understanding of the work of God through the gospel, which is our fourth characteristic that we see in this text. Consistently give thanks to God, regularly pray for others, eagerly look for spiritual fruit, and carefully consider the gospel's impact. Notice verse 5. He says, we've heard of your faith and love because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Paul says, the, this faith and love that I have heard are in you and that cause me to thank God for you and for his work within you. He understood where those came from. Ultimately, they came from the work of God, which is why Paul was giving thanks to God for them. But more than that, he understood it was God working through the power of the gospel. So we too must carefully consider the gospel and its impact. Notice first Paul highlights the hope of the gospel. He says this faith and love which you have were because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's interesting, he says, I've heard of your faith and love, and, and those were flowing from the hope that you had found in the gospel. Their faith and love were because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. You know, oftentimes faith is seen or presented even in Scripture as the foundation of those three virtues, faith, hope and love, and there's certainly an aspect where that's true. It's our faith that gives us hope and, and spurs us to love. But here, hope is the foundation. Now, we've been learning about hope in 1 John. Biblically, it's not wishful thinking. It's a, a certainty and an eager anticipation for what we have confidence is coming and we are desiring to come. They had a certain and eager hope that they came to understand through the gospel, a hope that was laid up in heaven for them. What is this hope that's laid up for you in heaven? Well, 1 Peter 1.3 that Joshua read at the beginning of their service says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope because Jesus was raised from the dead, and so we have the hope of eternal life. And in that eternal life, verse 4 goes on and says, we will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
These Colossian believers had that hope laid up for them in heaven. They had a, a confidence that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we will one day be with him. We will spend eternity in his presence as the people of God. And why do we have this hope? Well, it's because of the gospel. They heard about this hope. They understood this hope through the word of truth, the gospel, because of Christ and what he has done. And again, as we've been learning in 1 John, this hope, this certain future fueled their faith and love, their growing trust in Christ and love for others, and it fuels our life now. It leads us to a life of trust and obedience, to a life of love for others and for Christ. We've seen that in recent weeks in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, which said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And does that just affect our future that we say, okay, one day we'll be like him? No, he says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Our sure hope for the future affects how we live in the present. Titus chapter 2 makes that connection as well. It says in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's how the believers commanded to live now. And, and how do we live that way? Why do we live that way? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. When we keep a perspective of that hope, when the gospel gives us hope, it produces a transformation in our life now. Moses is a great example of this. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11 of, of someone whose hope, whose eyes to the future shaped his present life in powerful ways. It says of Moses, you remember, who was um, born to an Israelite mother but was adopted into the household of, of Pharaoh to save his life. In verse 24, it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses made a choice. He said, I'd, I'd rather endure ill treatment with the people of God than all the pampering and pleasures that come as royalty in Egypt. I, I'd rather endure the suffering with, on, on behalf of, of Christ and his people than endure, or enjoy the riches and the treasures of Egypt. Why did he do that? Was it just because he was thinking about the here and now and made that decision? No, it says at the end of verse 26 that he was looking to the reward. He was looking ahead, not to like, you know, what he was going to get 20 years down the road as leader of Israel. He was looking to eternity, to, to the fact that he was going to have a future hope that shaped how he lived now. Paul understood that's how the gospel works. 
When the gospel promises us a sure future, it gives us hope of eternal life, it transforms how we live now. When someone comes to understand and respond to the truth of the gospel, they will be changed. There will be fruit in this life. And so Paul highlights the hope of the gospel that drove their growing faith and love. He also highlights, secondly, the growth of the gospel. Look at verse 6. He says, this gospel, which contained the hope laid up for you in heaven, has come to you. Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. He says the gospel has been working in you, and it's not something unique for you. It's what the gospel is constantly doing all over the world. And what is that? The gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It's it's bearing fruit. It's causing growth in the individuals who have responded to the gospel. It's the transforming power of the gospel. It's changing you. And it's increasing. It's spreading. It's growing in in the breadth of its impact as more people come to understand and respond to the gospel. There is a depth of change produced in each individual who responds to the gospel, and there's a breadth of impact through the spreading of the gospel. That was what happened at Colossae. That's what is ha- was happening all over the world, Paul said, through the gospel, and that's what continues to happen through the gospel. The growing maturity of believers and growing numbers of believers doesn't mean that the gospel always produces the fruit that we would hope for. It doesn't mean there aren't hard places. It doesn't mean there aren't people who remain stubborn and hard-hearted and reject the gospel. But the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And what was the gospel that was producing this growth? Paul highlights it at the end of verse 6 as the grace of God in truth. It was the true gospel rooted in the truth of God's word and, and the realities of who God is and what Christ has done. And it, was the, it is the gospel of grace, of unmerited favor received from God through Jesus Christ. Again, Paul expected this growth of the gospel, this bearing fruit and increasing. He understood that's how God works through the gospel. After all, Romans 1.16 says, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul was looking for it. He he gave thanks to God for it. But how does the gospel spread? How does the gospel produce that fruit? It's by being proclaimed, which is the third reality about the gospel's impact that Paul highlights, the proclamation of the gospel the proclamation of the gospel. He says in verse seven, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. The gospel is a gospel of hope. It's a gospel that saves and transforms sinners but for the gospel to spread and produce that growth, it must be proclaimed. 
The Colossians were transformed by the gospel because Epaphras proclaimed to them the gospel. It wasn't about Epaphras. It wasn't that he was so clever or convincing. He, he was described here as a, a slave, as a servant. No, it was about Christ and the message of the gospel. The gospel is the power. We simply must proclaim it, but we must proclaim it. Romans 10 13 to 15 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Gospel is the power of God for salvation. It transforms and bears fruit and increases Our responsibility and privilege is to proclaim that gospel with boldness, clarity, and confidence. To do so in our homes with our children from the time they are young, that they might say, as as Paul said of Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that from infancy they've known the sacred writings which are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. Speaking the gospel in our workplaces and to our neighbors and friends as ambassadors of Christ, doing so recognizing that it is ultimately not our efforts or our wisdom that bring about change, but the power of God working through the gospel that is faithfully declared from the scriptures. We trust that if we are faithful to do that, that God will work, that just as in all the world, the gospel will be bearing fruit and increasing and We pray that he will do that, that God will save sinners and that those who have been saved will grow into increasing likeness to Christ and we look for that spiritual fruit that is produced from the hope of the gospel, faith in Christ Jesus and love for the saints and when we see that, we give thanks to God. You know, Paul gives us here a model of one who is grateful for gospel growth for the the spiritual growth that he saw in individuals and churches of maturing into the image of Christ and numerical growth of more people responding to the gospel. He's a model of one who's thankful to God for the amazing transformation and growth he produces through the gospel. We're to follow his example, to consistently give thanks to God to regularly pray for others, to eagerly look for spiritual fruit and to carefully consider the gospel's impact. May we do that today and in regards to the work that God continues to do at North Lake Bible Church. Let's give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the growth that he is producing in the believers there for the numerical growth, the additional people that he has brought into his kingdom as a result of their being a faithful local church in that neighborhood and community. May we do that in regards to our own lives and our families and and our church and and the work that God is doing in, in so many places around the world through the proclamation of the gospel. May that gratitude characterize us as we hear about and see God's work all around us in the world. You know, Paul was incredibly grateful for the work God had done in them through the gospel. 
But he also wasn't content with that work. As, as I mentioned, he prayed at the beginning here, noting that he was giving thanks to God for the work that had already been done, but he also prayed for God's continued work, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, that they would continue to grow into spiritual maturity. Perhaps we'll consider that prayer together at some point in the, in the coming months, but in the meantime, may we be grateful for gospel growth.